Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined today, this Friday afternoon, we're recording by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to kick off, as always, with a quick chat about the market. What's been happening this week, Simon? What's your take on uh, on things? Well, I'm delighted to be able to report that it's actually been a better week for the market. And this, of course, follows five consecutive weeks of negative performance, or at least for the, the investment companies sector. Uh, as you mentioned, we haven't quite hit the finish line for this week, but certainly for the first four days of the week, the investment company sector was up 1.2%. And I suspect it will finish up a little bit higher than that on the day. Still behind the UK market for those first four days of the week, the UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share up about 1.5%. But we have seen investment trusts, the sector average discount narrow in a little. It started the week about 36 It came into about 3.2% at the close of Thursday. But yes, as always, an interesting week for the markets. There's obviously a lot of negative media reports in the UK at the moment. Talk of Christmas shortages, container ships being turned away, UK interest rates to rise before Christmas. We've seen some IPOs pulled as well. And yet, when you actually look at the corporate results that are coming through, particularly from the US, but including the UK and the rest of the world, that actually earnings are coming through in a good way. They are delivering. They're meeting expectations. They're even exceeding expectations. And clearly, there are issues with supply chains, but it does appear as if the better companies are managing their way through it. And what's certainly true as well is that, in general, balance sheets are healthy. So I think the market is taking some comfort from that. Yes. So I suppose another way of putting it is to say that we've been through a choppy period of five or six weeks. Uh, but then before that, we had a very consistently rising market without much of a significant pullback. So while we all, and I'll include myself amongst this, tend to rush to sort of interpret moves in the market, the general moves in the market, and relate that to current events, it's actually a slightly more subtle process than that, isn't it? Uh, it's something to do with momentum and whether shares have got ahead of themselves as well as to do with fundamentals. But you're right, there's been a lot going on and there's obviously concern in the States also about uh, the debt ceiling has been resolved, but there's still a lot of wrangling in Congress. But that's normal for this time of year. Anyway, there's the market for the moment. Let's see how things pan out. We'll learn a lot more over the coming weeks as we run up to Christmas. Normally quite a strong period for the markets. Let's talk about corporate activity and let's kick off by ticking off some of the current situations which are moving forward. Let's start with Acorn Income Fund. That ticker there is AIF. And again, one we've talked about a reasonable amount in recent months. So uh, this week on Monday, it was the last day of trading for this investment trust. It was actually suspended from trading on Tuesday. So that was its ordinary share line and its zero dividend preference shares. And that was just ahead of a, an EGM that sought shareholder approval for its liquidation. That approval was forthcoming. And so therefore, the company is now moved into liquidation. There will be an announcement on or around about the 10th of November that will give more details in terms of shareholders' entitlements to cash and or the rollover into an open-ended fund managed by Unicorn. Yes, I should just mention Unicorn are not represented, I don't think, in the main part of the investment trust universe. But do they have a VCT? I think they do, don't they? I think they're involved with VCTs. And, and to be fair, they were responsible for the equity proportion of Acorn Income Fund. So there's continuity being provided in that regard. Indeed. So it's just really moving the residual amount of cash into the hands of Unicorn who were managing the other side before. Indeed. OK, so move on. Let's talk about uh, Artemis Alpha Trust, ticker ATS. This is a trust that has been uh, on a program of trying to resolve some legacy issues under a new manager. And uh, as we come up to the third anniversary of the change of manager, we've got some more news about what they're proposing to do. Yeah, this is an interesting development, actually. And it goes back to exactly what you were saying in terms of effectively, this investment trust had a reboot in 2018. A chap called Kartik Kumar came in to work alongside John Dodd in terms of the day-to-day -day management of the portfolio. And it, the emphasis was shifted to allow the investment trust to invest more outside of the UK. So this is an investment trust is essentially focused on UK equities. It does have a small element of private companies in there as well. And since that time, performance has picked up. But as part of the package of measures that was announced three years ago, one of the elements was a triennial 25% tender offer at a 3% discount. So that's coming up around about now. 
But what the board have come out and said is that rather than hold that tender offer, they are minded to adopt what they are describing as a dynamic share buyback policy that will target a discount of about 4 to 5%. And they argue that's broadly in line at the level you'd expect to get out with that 25% tender offer. So the big idea is that rather than have that one-off liquidity event, that they would, over a period of three years, effectively run this buyback programme. And I think that's in recognition of the desire to keep this fund a reasonable size to allow it to have that liquidity in the secondary market. And I think it's also an acknowledgement of the performance that record that has picked up under Kartik's stewardship. It's worth noting that the 2024 tender offer, so i.e. three years hence, the intention remains to hold another 25% tender offer. But this is all subject to shareholder approval uh, and there'll be a general meeting in November. So just remind us, the point about promising these tenders at regular intervals, which is what Artemis did back three years ago when the new management regime took over, uh, the idea is that by promising this tender offer at a fixed point in the future, you're effectively encouraging the shareholders to stick with you until they can see whether the new strategy or the new manager has, has actually worked in delivering better results, which was the idea of it. That's essentially the idea. And presumably they will be saying to the shareholders, well, look, we've actually performed pretty well. The, the reboot has worked, if you like, and therefore it would be uh, possibly unwise to give back so much of the assets uh, too quickly. Would that be about right? I think that's right. And I think it's a recognition of the fact that there's also still an unquoted element in there. It's about 6% or so at the moment that's come down. I mean, at one stage, it was a relatively significant amount in this particular investment trust. But even three years ago, it would have been in double digits. So obviously, if you have that 25% tender offer and is fully subscribed and that 6% waiting uh, on the assumption that you can't readily realise it becomes a larger weighting. So I think they're saying, look, the balance of the portfolio kind of works at the moment. It's quite a concentrated portfolio, 25 holdings or so. And they have already consulted with some of their larger shareholders, uh, apparently. So one would hope and assume that they've got them on side for this. Right. So that may well go through. We might just quickly remind us of the performance of this particular trust and uh, the track record that uh, this new young manager. Kartik Kumar is uh, helping to put together with John Dodd, the uh, CEO of Artemis. So over the last three years in NAV total return terms, I've got it up 29%. That compares to a rise of 19% for the FTSE all share. Uh, And actually, as I mentioned, it's a very concentrated portfolio, 25 holdings, a real contrarian value uh, approach to UK equities. Okay, so we'll see how that one plays out. Let's uh, move on to Baker Steel Resources Trust, BSRT is the ticker where there has been also some uh, triennial activity. (laughs) Well, this is a bit of a curio. We talked about this a couple of podcasts ago when inadvertently, uh, as a result of a major proxy voting agency, unnamed in the announcement at least, because that agency had messed up and had mistakenly advised, I think is how they've termed it, shareholders to vote in favour of discontinuation, this investment trust faced the prospect on the eve of its AGM of effectively finding itself out of existence. It wasn't quite as straightforward as that. But that basically prompted the board at the very last moment to delay the AGM. That has now been held. That was held this week. And unsurprisingly enough, the triennial discontinuation vote was rejected by the majority about 95% or so of shares voted were in line with the board's recommendations. So Baker Steel Resources Trust lives to fight another day. Right. So if 94% of the shareholders vote against discontinuation, that's another way of saying that the great majority wanted to carry on. Exactly. And you can see possibly why a little confusion kind of crept into the process. Yes. If you have too many negatives in your in your resolutions, it can sometimes get a little bit confusing, <laughs> as we have all learned in our own lives, probably. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Civitas Social Housing, which has been wrestling with a different sort of issue. It has to be said, we've talked about this a lot, obviously, in the last two, three weeks, where the trust has come under attack from a uh, a short seller. And there's been more developments in this, uh, again, what is turning into quite a heated and ongoing battle, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, that's right. So the big development, well, there have been several developments again this week. So on Monday, at the start of the week, a paper was published, which provided the board's detailed responses to the questions that had been raised by the short seller, so Shadowfall. So it was a 37-page report. There was a huge amount of detail in there and a lot of disclosure. We found out a lot more about the company and some of its practices that hadn't necessarily been disclosed in the past. But clearly, it had taken some time. We had been expecting this announcement for a period of time. And obviously, 
They really went through all the correct processes, one assumes, and kind of ran it all past their legal advisors. So the kind of the headline really, without getting too much into the detail, was that the board absolutely remains confident in the strength of Civitas Social Housing and Civitas Investment Management, i.e. the manager of the fund. They noted that the fund's assets and revenues continue to perform in line with expectations, and they reaffirmed the raised dividend target for the financial year for 2022. So that's what the board came out and said on Monday. Then a day or two later, we had Shadowfall, the short seller, who kind of kicked this whole process off. They came out with a second open letter. This elaborated on new concerns with the fund's response uh, and actually put on the table a suggestion or an invitation maybe to all the investment companies, major shareholders, sector specialists, regulators, other key sector stakeholders and the board to discuss matters in a roundtable event, which sounds slightly surreal. Um, But they also went on to note that actually the affiliated party transactions that they'd identified were perhaps the scale of them were were greater than they uh, initially thought. And the quote that we picked up from it certainly was that they described the fund's response as, quote, hollow, using deflection and misdirection to divert attention away from the core issues for stakeholders. So it didn't appear at that stage, at least, that Shadowfall were prepared to walk away. And they were, it's worth noting, as of the 13th of October, they had a short position equivalent to about 1% of Civitas shares. Unsurprisingly, the board didn't let it lie. They came back and they issued an announcement. They basically noted this uh, further letter, and but they said, well, we've already provided a detailed and verified commentary and they don't intend to make uh, a further response. But yet again, they reaffirmed their dividend target, which at 5 spot 5.5p equates to a yield of above 6% down on the current share price. So what do we make of all this? I mean, we don't need to get into all the details of exactly what is at stake here, though we did uh, identify the major issues a couple of weeks ago. Two things sort of stand out for this. I suppose one is that Shadowfall are still, at least as of the 30th of October, still had their short position of 1% in the shares. And the market share price reaction, it went up a bit, uh, you know, not this week, but last week, I think, and now uh, it's gone back down again. So what do you make of the price movements? You're absolutely right. The share price, we have, certainly haven't seen a bounce back Um, It's kind of hovering around about the 90p level. I think it's uh, trading about 87, 88p today. One of the things to note is that Civitas Social Housing has been quite active on its buyback policy. So since the 20th of September, they've bought back by our estimates about 4.2 million shares. So that equates to nearly £4 million worth of shares they've bought back, just a little bit under than that. Now, that's about 0.7% of the share capital. So they've got a lot of scope to do this. Shareholders gave them authority to buy back shares at their AGM. But they're buying back, or certainly they have bought back to date, probably about an average price of 90.1p. So they're using quite a bit of their capital to support the share price. Obviously, Shadowfall at that stage at least had a short position. I think there's been some disclosure in addition to that of other institutional investors taking shorts out on the company. So one would suspect that this one will run and run. It doesn't appear as if the short sellers are backing off any time soon. Yes, so the problem for the board and the trust itself and the shelter of the trust is that, uh, as you say, if this drags on in this kind of argy-bargy goes on, it is rather damaging and creates more uncertainty for the shareholders. Though, as you say, if you believe the board and you uh, think that the share price has fallen too far, then the yield, obviously, which was uh, relatively attractive before, has become even more so. So, it would be interesting to see how this plays out. I guess the board's sort of strategy is to say that, well, actions speak just as loudly as words in this. And uh, if we're buying back the shares, you know, that should give you confidence that we are confident in our position. Well, it's an interesting one. Just tell us quickly whether there's been any further knock-on effect on the rest of the social housing sector, which is a relatively new one, of course. So if you look at probably its most comparable peer, triple point social housing REIT, they certainly have seen their share price weaken, though not to the same extent as Civitas. So just to put some numbers around that, since the start of September, triple point social housing, also known as SOHO, because that's its ticker, S-O-H-O, that's down about 8 or 9%. That compares with a fall of 15% for Civitas social housing, and that's from the start of September. But if you look at the peer group, I mean, We've got it in UK residential, so UK residential property. And within that sector, there's a whole kind of mixed bag of funds, uh, including GCP student living, which is subject to a takeover bid. So that's got its completely different dynamic. But certainly, if you look at it today, 
Um, Civitas is trading on the widest discount of about 18% or so. Okay, well, I dare say we will have to talk about that one again. It's uh, an interesting situation. Let's move on and quickly note something to do with Electra Private Equity, ticker ELTA, which we know is in the process of effectively uh, winding up, but uh, taking a couple of steps with its last remaining investments. Uh, So what's the news there? So the news this week is the proposed demerger of Hostmore PLC and its intention to list in its own right uh, will be subject to approval by Electra Private Equity's shareholders on the 1st of November, with the intention being that the shares in that new company begin trading on the 2nd of November. And just to remind people, Hostmore is effectively a hospitality business, and that includes Fridays or TGI Fridays, as I think most people know it as. So that will leave Electra Private Equity effectively with, with a single holding been Hotter Shoes. I think they've kind of rebranded that now as Unbound Group or Hotter Shoes as a subsidiary of that. And that will become its own trading company in its own right. But they also provided a trading update for Hostmore uh, and how it's fared since the resumption of indoor dining on the 17th of May. Okay, so that was an interesting development. Let's talk about Gresham House Strategic, where there's also been uh, some interesting news this week. Tell us more about this one. That's right. So this is a bit more of an involved situation. So just to remind people, Gresham House Strategic, this kind of dates back to uh, events in May this year. Gresham House PLC, who are a large, in fact, they possibly might be the largest shareholder in Gresham House Strategic, uh, effectively requisitioned the board in an attempt to remove the chairman, uh, which obviously is quite an unusual move for your investment manager to try and get rid of the chairman. This kicked off a whole sequence of events. So the chairman did stand down, but a strategic review was announced. And actually, the manager, the investment manager, resigned, resigned from Gresham House itself. So uh, fast forward a period of time. And this week, the board announced the appointment of an outfit called Harwood Capital, as its investment manager. The CEO of Harwood Capital is a gentleman called Christopher Mills, who is a, I think we could describe him as a veteran investment manager. He's responsible for North Atlantic smaller companies and Oryx International Growth in the Investment Trust peer group. Harwood also has an interest in uh, Odyssean Capital, who are responsible for Odyssean Investment Trust, so a specialist UK small cap play. They were appointed as an investment manager. What was interesting as well is Richard Staveley, who was the lead manager until his resignation, he will continue as the lead manager following the expiry of uh, contractual restrictions from Gresham House Asset Management on the 1st of December. And in addition to that, Harwood has undertaken to offer to Gresham House PLC to purchase its entire shareholding in Gresham House Strategic at the latest NAV. Um, in addition to which Harwood is prepared to put more capital to work, so invest for new shares again at NAV. And there's also going to be changes to the fee arrangements as well. So this one at the moment has got um, quite a steep performance fee. Uh, And the final bit of information I'll give you is that they've got a proposal to change their name to Rockwood Strategic PLC. So just sort of picking a path through all that interesting detail. So am I right in saying this effectively amounts to a bit of a sort of coup being taken place here? Uh, the chairman was got rid of, and uh, Harwood Capital has now taken over the management of the trust. So at the end of all this, I mean, what should one conclude from this? What's really been going on here? Well, what lessons to be learned? I think once uh, the investment manager and the board fall out quite spectacularly, as they clearly they have in this instance, then that's not sustainable. Something has to give. And in this case, it's the investment manager, or it would appear to be. But as I mentioned, Gresham House do have a large stake in this one. So Harwood have offered to take them out at NAV. And it's worth pointing out that when this particular deal was announced, Gresham House Strategic was trading on an 11% discount. So an exit at NAV might essentially seem to be quite attractive. Whether Gresham House PLC will see it in, in quite the same way remains to be seen. But I think for Harwood Capital's point of view, they, they, as I mentioned, they're already involved in three investment trusts and it's, it's quite a significant part of their business. Uh, and they're quite keen to develop their footprint in this area. Um, We've talked quite a bit about Odyssean Investment Trust over previous podcasts. This Gresham House Strategic or the renamed Rockwood Strategic will be complementary. It's doing something slightly different. There's much more emphasis on uh, turnaround names and more consumer names. It's a more concentrated portfolio. But the idea will be that it's complementary at the same time. So I think it kind of is a reflection of their ambitions. So Harwood Capital's ambitions and the advantages that they see in the Investment Trust structure in this particular segment of the market. 
Just to round that off, I mean, how big is Gresham House Strategic at the moment? I mean, it's not a huge pot of money they'll be taking over, but they'd obviously have aspirations to grow it, as you say. So Gresham House Strategic at the moment's probably got about assets of £66 million or so. So it's not a particularly large investment trust. But again, clearly Harvard will be, I suspect, very minded to grow it and to take out a potential overhang in the former Gresham House PLC will obviously be a key part of trying to rebuild the appeal of this one. So we'll move on and we'll just quickly note what's been happening at the Gulf Investment Fund, ticker GIF. This is a somewhat uh, peripheral trust in terms of uh, UK focus, but tell us what the news is there. So we found out the result of uh, its latest tender offer, and I think we talked about this one a couple of weeks ago. So just really to kind of round this off, um, about five and a half million shares were tendered. That was equivalent to just under 11% of the share capital. The key thing to note, though, is that the fund retains a kind of critical mass. And that was one of the things that they said it had to exceed a minimum size. So going forward, it'll have about 46 million shares in issue. That uh, gives it access to about $86 million or about £62 million sterling. So that's uh, apparently large enough for the fund to continue to invest. So we can move on from corporate goings on and talk about fundraising. We know it's been a record year for fundraising in many respects, and it's still going on. No doubt if the market recovers and continues to recover, we'll see even more maybe. Let's talk about, first of all, a small one and then move on to a couple of interesting potential IPOs. Let's start with the Downing Renewables and Infrastructure, ticker D-O-R-E. What have they uh, done on the fundraising front? So they announced this week that they'd raised £15 million, and that was through a placing and also a primary bid offer. So just over 14 million new shares were issued at a price of 102 spot 5p. And those shares are to begin trading on the 19th of October, so early part of next week. So that £15 million, that was less than the target. Uh, They were looking to raise, I think, £25 million. But this is um, probably one of the smaller infrastructure funds. It only came to the market in uh, December last year. I think this one was launched uh, when they raised about £123 million. Okay. Well, I see you talk about the purpose of this is to invest in some additional assets uh, in Sweden, Finland, Iceland, Poland, UK. I can't help noticing that you describe this as a wider pipeline. So uh, probably quite a good thing if you're in the infrastructure business to have a wide pipeline. Uh, But in any case, let's move on and talk about a couple of potential IPOs, starting with something called Harmony Energy Income Trust, H-E-I-T. So Harmony Energy Income Trust announced this week that they were looking to raise £230 million through their IPO, and that will be invested in a portfolio of battery energy storage systems located in Great Britain. The yield is a key part of the investment story, as one might expect. They're targeting 2% in 2022, but looking to increase that to 8% in 2023, and the idea is that they will pay their dividends quarterly. The fund will invest in what they describe as shovel-ready projects, but they also have the potential for a value uplift once they are operational. But over the long term, the unlevered NAV total return target for the projects is 10% per annum. So they provide a lot of detail in terms of the kind of kit that they're looking to buy. But I suspect one aspect that would have caught many people's eyes is the fact that certainly their initial seed portfolio is part of the Tesla empire. Apparently, the team at Harmony has worked with Tesla since 2016, and this has been chosen for the initial portfolio. Uh, And in fact, in terms of how they're going to acquire that, there's going to be an issue of shares going the other way. So they effectively pay for this initial portfolio with their own paper, and that will be subject to a five-year lockup. So an interesting IPO, clearly uh, battery energy has been in favour this year, uh, and it'd be um, fascinating to see how this one fares. Yes, just remind us who else is out there in this field and uh, against whom presumably this uh, particular proposed launch will be benchmarked. Yeah, so there are two battery storage funds out there at the moment. So Gresham House one, actually, Gresham House Energy Storage. Um, that's trading on a probably about a 17% premium or so at the moment. Uh, they've raised quite a lot of capital and have a market cap of about $560 million. And there's also Gore Street Energy Storage as well probably trading on about a 14% premium to its NAV. Uh, and again, market cap not too far off £400 million. Right. So the arrival of this potential trust is obviously an indicator that they've noted the premiums and then sure that there'll be some demand out there. At least people will certainly have a look at this one. 
I'm no doubt they're hoping that the magic name of Tesla will somehow resonate and translate into consumer interest. Let's talk about Pantheon Infrastructure next, which is also looking to do an IPO. So tell us about this one. Is this related to uh, the private equity trust in any way? Well, it's the same outfit behind it. So Pantheon Ventures, uh, I mean, it'd be a different investment team within it. So just to give you some numbers on that, Pantheon Ventures are responsible for total assets under management and advice of about 71 billion US dollars. But that includes 16 billion US dollars of infrastructure assets. So um, they would argue, I'm sure, that they're quite experienced as a group in investing in infrastructure. But this particular launch is looking to raise £300 million through its IPO. An interesting element of the, the deal is that uh, investors will also receive a subscription share for every five ordinary shares subscribed for, and they will be exercisable at 101p in June, July and August of 2022. But effectively, the fund will be invested in a, what they describe as a high-quality mix of yielding and growth assets with strong downside and inflation protection in developed markets. So again, just to put some numbers in terms of what they're trying to achieve, there's an NAV total return target of between 8 and 10% per annum after they're fully invested. There will be an initial target dividend of at least 2p in the first financial year, but that will rise to 4p for the financial year ending 31st of December 2023, in other words, when they hope to be fully invested and the dividend will be progressive thereafter. But this uh, fund will be quite diversified in terms of its sectors that will be exposed to. So we're talking digital infrastructure, renewables and energy efficiency, power and utilities, transport, and logistics and social. Uh, and they believe that they have a pipeline of co-investment opportunities already in active due diligence of about a billion pounds or so. So I guess uh, one of the questions here is, well, given how popular the infrastructure sector has been in recent years and how much money has flowed into it, is it a surprise, perhaps, that Pantheon haven't uh, tried to do something like this before? I suppose they've never really stepped outside their core investment trust, uh, which is listed in this country before, have they? Not to my knowledge, no. I think uh, you know Pantheon International, I think you're referring to on the listed private equity side, has obviously been a flagship product for them. Um, it's certainly a very well-known uh, investment trust. But you make a good point. Obviously, there are a number of investors who have deployed significant amounts of capital in infrastructure uh, and yet we only see uh, a relatively small number of them in the investment company space. I suspect the consideration for people such as them or indeed Pantheon might be, you know, how much money can be raised on day one? How big could a, a listed vehicle become? Um, it may be, frankly, a lot easier just to go out to institutional investors, to pensions or whatever it might be, overseas investors, and actually raise capital for an LP to deploy an infrastructure rather than go through the, frankly, hassle of launching an investment company uh, and have the execution risks and all the costs involved of it. Obviously, Pantheon have now decided to go down this route and, you know, £300 million, if they were to be successful, uh, would mean that it would be one of the largest IPOs of the year. But just before we leave this one, let's just go back to this uh, always interesting topic of subscription shares, uh, what they are and why some investment trusts do look to offer them to shareholders. Just remind us exactly how subscription shares work, first of all, and then secondly, uh, what the pros and cons of actually offering them to investors are. I mean, they're an, they're an inducement that actually often, I would suggest, turns out to be not really an inducement at all. But it sounds like something for nothing anyway. It does. And not everyone's cup of tea, frankly. But, um, you know, we, there are a number of instances across the investment company sector where we have seen them and continue to see them. Subscription shares are listed shares and they give the holders the right, but not the obligation to invest or to effectively look to convert their shares into an ordinary share at a particular point in time at a particular price. So in the case of Pantheon infrastructure, it would appear to be 101p, and that's the level, and they've given the dates at which shareholders of those subshares can look to convert. So why would you want to do that? Well, if, as I'm sure the hope is, the share price increases of Pantheon infrastructure, so the ordinary share price increases over that period of time, then that ability or that opportunity to invest at 101p might suddenly look quite attractive. However, to your point about why it's all smoke and mirrors, for the ordinary share class, if people are subscribing at 101p when, say, for the sake of argument, the NAV is 110p, there's actually a dilution, a dilutory effect from that. So if you hold both the subshares and the ordinary shares, then 
it doesn't really make too much difference. But if you're just holding the ordinary shares and a whole kind of wave of subshares come in, then that is a dilution to the NAV. So it's a little bit complicated on a Friday afternoon or after a long week. It's perhaps not the easiest thing to explain, but if in doubt, I'm sure there's good websites such as the AICs that will give you a chapter and verse on it. Indeed. But they're not particularly common these days. I think it's it's fair to say. No, that's right. I mean, there was a kind of whole wave of them back in the noughties. And to be honest, at one stage, it was seen as a way of raising new capital for investment trust companies. There was a time when investment trust companies invariably traded on a discount. It was very difficult to raise new capital. And yet you could issue a subscription share, you know, some were dated out five years, seven years, whatever it was. And, and it was an opportunity for an investment trust to grow or have potentially grow. And it was a relatively cheap form of fundraising, should it be successful. And clearly, it wasn't successful in all instances. Okay, so we'll move on from that uh, very useful seminar there. Thank you, Simon. And we will move on to talk about some results now. And we're going to kick off with Invesco Perpetual, UK's smaller companies, ticker IPU, which does what it says on the tin. And they've had some uh, interim results out, I think. That's right. Uh, For the six-month period to the end of July, a pretty decent set of results. Actually, the NAV total return was up 23% or so. That compared to a rise of 19% for the benchmark, the NSC Index X investment companies. And in fact, in share price terms, it was even stronger, up 31.4%. And that was a reflection of the fact the discount tightened from about 15% into about 9%. So why did they do so well? Well, they benefited from a number of takeover bids and that's certainly been a feature of the UK small cap sector, or even the mid cap sector as well over the last 12 months or so. Um, so they certainly did well through that. They also benefited from uh, probably making some new investments as well. So new holdings in the period included Serco, Restaurant Group and Avon Protection. But this particular investment trust is differentiated. It's one of the enhanced dividend investment trusts. In other words, uh, it pays out all its portfolio income and then enhances the dividend by using realised capital profits. So there's a target dividend yield of about 4% at the year end. And in line with that policy, this fund paid a 3.75p interim dividend so far. Okay, well, let's contrast and compare that, as we say, with JP Morgan UK smaller companies, uh, JMI. They've had some results out, but these are annual results rather than uh, interim results. Yeah, that's right. So the 12 months again to the end of July, and again, a very, very strong set of results. The NAV total return was up 68%. That compared with a rise of 50% for their benchmark, the NSCI plus AIM, X Investment Companies Index. In share price terms, they were even stronger, actually up 79%. Again, the discount narrowed from about 14% to 8%. So the holdings that worked well for them in this period, it was Future, Breach, ErgoMed and uh, Luceco, maybe. And also they had some kind of COVID-19 exposed holdings such as OSB, Jet2 and Vistry that did well for them. But uh, Katan Patel and Georgina Britton, very experienced uh, investment team. Funnily enough, they also benefited from a number of bids in the period. So Codemasters, Suma and uh, Ogean. Um, and they've also got involved in some of the IPOs. So the UK market in general has seen a lot of IPOs again over the last 12 months. Uh, and they've used those IPOs to get stakes in Victorian Plumbing, Bytes, Tiny Build and Big Technologies. So a strong period for this one. It's not entirely unfair, I think. If we look at the one-year performance figures for those two trusts, uh, we can compare those, I think, and the NAVs. What would they look like as between those two uh, trusts? There's not much in it, basically. I mean, over the last 12 months, in NAV total return terms, Invesco Perpetual UK small companies up about 47% or so. Um, and just a little bit behind it, the JP Morgan UK smaller companies fund up 46%. And those both represent uh, an outperformance of the NSCI X Investment Companies Index, which is up 39%. Okay, but then just quickly over longer time periods, is it still the same story or not? Yeah, over the longer time period, JP Morgan has the stronger track record. So uh, the JP Morgan Fund is up 140% over five years on an NAV total return basis. Uh, The Invesco Perpetual UK smaller company is up 95%. Okay, so let's move on and talk about uh, the Mercantile Investment Trust, ticker MRC, also had interim results uh, for the six months to the 31st of July, though I think their benchmark is slightly different from the smaller companies' trusts. Uh, What what have they had to say about their results? 
Yeah, another good set of results. And it's worth noting the Mercantile Investment Trust is a stable mate of the JP Morgan UK Smaller Companies Fund. So uh, it's another JP Morgan fund. In other words, it's Guy Anderson and Anthony Lynch responsible for this one. And in that particular six month period, the NAV total return was up 25% or so. That compared with 18% uh, for the benchmark. And the benchmark is the FTSE All Share excluding the FTSE 100 companies. So in other words, you take the 100 largest companies out of the UK market and their benchmark is everything else. So they outperformed that over that six-month period. Uh, the share price total return, uh, not quite as good, uh, but still represented an outperformance. It was up 21%. And in fact, that reflected the fact the discount widened from 4% to 8% in the period. But the outperformance just reflected you know, positive stock selection. Gearing was also positive. But they had strong performances from holdings such as Watches of Switzerland and Future, although Jet2 was a detractor. But there was some interesting commentary around how they saw life in terms of disruption to supply chains and inflation. And they said that the pace of growth they expect to moderate, but they still have a positive outlook. And in fact, that's reflected. I think their gearing level was about 10% or so at the end of July. Is there that significant difference apart from the fund managers between JP Morgan UK smaller companies and the mercantile, which excludes FTSE stocks? There will be a little bit of an overlap, but I think they are quite different portfolios. It's worth noting that there's a third JP Morgan fund in that kind of part of the stable. So it's the JP Morgan Midcap Investment Trust, and that's managed again by Katan Patel and Georgina Britton. And there will be an overlap there. But my recollection is the small cap fund has about, um, I can't, I'm going to make the number up, but it's about 30% overlap between the mid-cap fund. And obviously, the mercantile is going to have a larger bias towards uh, FTSE 250 companies. So again, off the top of my head, I'm going to say about 70 to 80% in mid-cap names, and then they'll have a, a tail of smaller companies. Right. So they're basically, they're covering the waterfront in, in a variety of ways, essentially, which is what they do. Okay, we're overseas now, and we're going to talk about a couple of Bailey Gifford trusts, first of all. Obviously, they were a bit of the star of the show, generally speaking, last year. But uh, this year has been a bit tougher, one or two of their trusts. Let's talk about Bailey Gifford China Growth to start with, which is uh, ticker BGCG. And they've had their interims and uh, it's been quite a rocky period for them. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's interim results to the 31st of July. The NAV total return is negative, so it was down 14% in that time. And that compares with a decline of 15% for the MSCI China All Shares Index. They had a number of US-listed stocks uh, that detracted from performance, such as Janssen, KE Holdings, and Billy Billy, as well as Maitang as well. But they did have a number of positive contributors as well. And also they avoided some of the education companies they avoided all the education companies i should say they had zero exposure so that certainly helped their relative returns but they've made a number of investments in companies that they describe as exposed to the green transition such as longy green energy and also industrial upgrading such as shengseng meg meat and they also made a few sales as well but interesting commentary from roderick snell and sophie earnshaw around how they see China at the moment. Clearly, it has been, as you said, a bit of a rocky ride this year for reasons that we've discussed in in podcasts gone by. I mean, in this particular portfolio, they're still overweight, Alibaba and Tencent. But what they really are is focused on what they describe as the sectors needed for growth. And again, it's the idea of advanced manufacturing plays or renewables or those that are seen industrial upgrading. So I suspect that though they didn't actually say this, but just to paraphrase, I think they're looking to recognise what the Chinese authorities are trying to do and invest alongside the direction of travel. This has not been in Bailey Gifford's hands for that long, though, has it? How long has it been managed by Bailey Gifford this trust and uh, since it took over from the previous managers? It's about a year, actually. I think, well, just over a year. September 2020, they took this one on. As you know, it had a, a spectacular start and went to a very big premium. And that's unwound to a, a greater or lesser extent. It has been certainly a roller coaster ride. I mean, I think the share price over the year is possibly even slightly lower than it was when they took over. But uh, that reflects the extraordinary gyrations we've seen in that market. So let's move on and talk about uh, Bailey Gifford Japan, ticker BGFD which has had um, annual results for the year to the 31st of August. In which time they generated an NAV total return of 21%, that compared with a rise of 16% for their benchmark. Um, The share price was a bit better, actually. Share price total return was actually up 26%. 
And that reflected the fact that their rating uh, moved to a 1% premium, having previously been on about a 3% discount. So Matthew Brett is responsible for this one. He's uh, actually been the lead manager since April 2018 now. And in this period, he saw some good returns from uh, holdings in logistics and industrials, while internet holdings detracted. But this is a kind of long-term play. I think we've talked about Japan a little bit recently. It's certainly been a tougher calendar year for the Japanese market. But uh, over the long term, uh, Bailey Gifford, Japan's numbers still remain pretty strong. And we can uh, then we want to talk about Fidelity Asian Values, ticker FAS. They've also had annual results for the same period. They have indeed, and they have also seen good absolute returns, so up about 39.5%, although interestingly enough, it's just a smidgen ahead of the benchmark index or the comparator index, which was up 39.2%. And that index is the MSCI All Countries Asia X Japan Small Cap Index, which is a bit of a mouthful. In share price terms, it was actually even stronger, so they're up 47.6% as the discount narrowed into about 3% or so. So perhaps as the benchmark suggested, this fund run by Nitin Bajar is uh, focused on smaller companies, Asian smaller companies. And in this period, performance was assisted by takeovers and privatizations and also being underweight sectors and stocks like Chinese education and internet companies. So it's all about small cap. It's all about value-driven stocks. Uh, interestingly enough, they made the first investment in a private company or an unlisted company, a company called Tuhu, uh, which apparently is an online-to-offline retailer for auto parts in China. And they also noted that uh, the turnover had been a little bit higher than perhaps you might expect. It's up about 66% in this particular year. And I think uh, obviously there was a lot going on over that period. Um, they also can do some shorts as well. So in other words, they sell companies they don't earn. And the short book has been uh, focused on businesses with excessive leverage, fragile business models and stretch valuations. But um, it's a relatively small part of the portfolio. Am I right in thinking that this trust, they've changed their investment policy a few years ago to uh, focus more on small caps? Is that right? I think your memory is serving you well there, actually. I couldn't tell you off the top of my memory exactly when they did that. But no, we have them in the Asia-Pacific smaller company subsector, so alongside Scottish Oriental smaller companies and Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus. Okay, so we move on and talk about uh, TR European Growth. Ticket TRG, annual results again, but this time to the 30th of June, not the 31st of July. And another strong set of results. The NAV total return was up 63.5% in that 12-month period. In share price terms, it was even stronger, up 79.5%, and that compared with a benchmark return of 36.5%, so material outperformance. So Ollie Beckett has been responsible for this one since the start of July in 2011, so over 10 years of service now. And basically, that outperformance uh, was attributed to the, the valuation discipline which helped during that kind of rotation from growth to value, as well as the inclusion of some kind of self-help turnaround stories and more cyclical value names in the portfolio uh, alongside some early stage growth stocks. It's also worth noting as well that the board have recently held a, a strategic review on this one. And it's worth noting that the boards often do strategic reviews. It doesn't necessarily, and frankly, doesn't often end in any kind of dramatic changes or certainly not in terms of the investment manager. But this one was just focused on how this particular investment trust could uh, appeal or it's improve its positioning in the retail investment market. And as a result of that review, um, they have proposed a number of changes. That includes a name change to the European Smaller Companies Trust, PLC, in order to better reflect the investment strategy. Um, they're also looking to do a, a share split as well. Uh, and there's going to be some changes to the management fees. So they're hoping in the round that this will help this investment trust appeal to a wider audience. Yes, I think it's fair to say this trust has a, a pretty good track record over the years. I think it's performed very well, has it not? Uh, and there aren't many people who can remember the days when TR was a factor in the investment trust market. So it's probably about time that they change their name. It might make some sense to describe who they are and what they do. So how does it perform? And who do you compare them against anyway in your universe? So we have a kind of Europe smaller companies subsector. So they stand alongside European assets uh, in the BMO stable, JP Morgan European Discovery and the Montanaro European Smaller Companies. And certainly if you look over five years, T 
TR European growth is up 94% in NAV total return terms. That's only second to Montanara European smaller companies. That's up 162% in NAV terms. And that reflects that it has had a real, very strong kind of growth bias, which obviously served it well, particularly in recent years. But the TR European growth fund is ahead of uh, the other two funds in its space. And in terms of size, I mean, it's been around for a long time, this one. It's one of the bigger trusts, uh, certainly in this uh, in this area. Am I right about that? It's a decent size. It's got a market cap of uh, just short of 720 million. Probably the JP Morgan European Discovery Fund is slightly ahead of it, 840. So that would be the largest in this particular subsector. But yes, you're right. It has a long uh, heritage and not probably too many people remember Touche Remnant, where its name originated from. Though it's worth noting, there is TR Property as well that still bears the TR initials. Indeed. Names that resonate from the past, as so many do in the investment trust sector. Let's talk about Impact Healthcare REIT, which is ticker IHR. This is one of these specialist property trusts. You might remind us what they do and uh, what do they have to say? Uh, Well, they provided a trading update for the quarter to the end of September, in which time their NAV was up 1%. They generated an NAV total return of 2.5% and they declared a dividend of 1.6025p and that was in line with their annual target of 6.41p for the calendar year, effectively the year to the end of December. But things seem to be moving in the right direction for Impact Healthcare and it is, perhaps as the name would suggest, it's care homes and very much kind of focus on the elderly. They've got 109 care homes now uh, in the portfolio. That's led to 12 tenants and they've continued to receive 100% of rent payments as well. So that again is in contrast with many funds in their kind of wider UK commercial property. But the managers continue to see uh, strong and growing opportunities. So he talks about the investment pipeline and apparently there are a number in exclusivity. Okay, that one is, uh, I'm sure, trading at a premium. Let's move on and talk about another trust that is trading at a premium, which is LXI REIT. They've had a trading update as well ahead of their results. What have they been saying to you and the market, Simon? Yeah, so again, a positive update ahead of those interim results. So basically, the property portfolio was valued at $1.22 billion, uh, at the end of September, uh, and that represented a 4.9% like-for-like increase over the six-month period since the end of March. The portfolio consists of 171 properties, and they're 100% let or pre-let to over 70 tenants. And again, they had a good story to tell on the rent side. So 100% of the rent due for Q4 2021 has been collected. So they're targeting an annual dividend of 6p per share for their financial year to 2022. And they're unusual in this sector because they have consistently traded a premium for some time, I think. Why is that? So just remind us why you think that is, as opposed to the experience that uh, many other commercial property trusts have uh, had to put up with. I mean, this one is differentiated by the fact there's an emphasis on long indexed inflation linkage. Um, There's lots of exposure to uh, more industrial properties as well. So they've probably avoided the pitfalls that others have certainly slipped into, particularly with a high weighting to uh, retail and to a slightly lesser degree office as well. So LXI REIT, absolutely correct. It trades on a premium rating uh, and yet still offers a yield of about 4% or so. Okay, and we can then talk about PRS REIT. Uh, PRSR is the ticker, which has been uh, doing some funding uh, not so long ago, I think. They've had their annual results out for the 30th of June. That's right, in which time they generated an EPRA NTA per share uh, rise of 4.1%. And uh, again, they reported that 98% of rent had been collected. Um, so that was all positive. They also provided a quarterly update to the 30th of September. Obviously, 30th of June seems a long time ago now. And again, they had a good story to tell in terms of their rent collection. That came in about 99%. And in fact, the portfolio, uh, certainly at the end of September, contained nearly 4,300 completed homes uh, with an expected rent value of uh, over £41 million. Pounds. Uh, although they're still looking to kind of roll out their portfolio and they remain on track to apparently reach their 5,000th home next year, 2022. And the yield on that one is what? How does that compare and contrast? So the yield on that one is just under 4% at the moment. I've got it 3.9%. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the results with one exception. Well, it's not really a result. It's more a interesting strategic development at, will you be surprised to hear, Hypnosis Songs Fund, S-O-N-G. 
They certainly know how to stay in the news, this outfit. And uh, this time they've announced something, actually not a new catalogue of some ageing rock or pop star, but uh, they've gone into a strategic partnership with a large investment firm. So perhaps you tell us more about that, Si. What's, what's all that about? Yeah, so it, it really is an interesting development, actually. So Blackstone, which is a big private equity outfit, they've come out and announced this week that they are looking to kind of get into partnership with Hypnosis Song Management. They've effectively announced a billion-dollar partnership to acquire music rights and manage catalogues. Blackstone will take an ownership stake in Hypnosis Song Management that we don't know the size or the quantum or how much money has changed hands or potentially could change hands. But the idea is that Hypnosis Songs Fund, so the enlisted vehicle that we look at, is expected to benefit, according to the announcement, from the investment in its investment manager and will have the right to co-invest in future catalogue acquisitions. So the market seemed to take this news uh, pretty well. The share price was up about 5 or 6% on the back of it. And this follows a bit of a trend, actually. So we've seen announcements in, really in recent months from other big private equity outfits such as KKR and Apollo, so very big US players, who are looking to get involved in this asset class. So it would appear to be uh, an endorsement of sorts. Indeed, which I think would be very welcome because a number of commentators have suggested that Hypnosis and Roundhill Music, the other royalties company that is listed in the UK market, they've raised some questions about the durability of this model, but this would definitely seem to be a vote of confidence, uh, you, you would think at least. But I guess one of the questions would be, uh, is this perhaps because it's another way of raising money for Hypnosis to, to invest in catalogues? I mean, it's, it's tapping into a different pool of capital alongside uh, the existing shareholders. Maybe the existing shareholders are a little bit of indigestion at the moment. What do you think? Well, as always, you make a good point. So if you remember, they have raised quite a lot of capital, but on their last fundraising effort, they made it clear that they would not come back to the market again. And my recollection is for a period of 12 months or so, it might be a bit plus or minus that, but it was certainly a decent period. And I, I, one wonders if they had a deal of this sort in the back of their minds, because obviously it gives them, being the management company, considerable firepower to go out and acquire catalogues. Um, it remains to be seen how Hypnosis Songs Fund, so the listed vehicle, directly benefits from this. Obviously, they get to see some of these deals, but if they don't have the capital to deploy, then presumably they can't participate. So it's always an interesting situation, obviously not necessarily with this asset class, but just in general. And I think it's really where boards can come into their own a little bit because the board's job of these listed vehicles is very much to kind of protect shareholders' interests. And when the management group, particularly when there's a finite amount of investment opportunities are involved, I think it's the board's job to ensure that the vehicles or therefore the shareholders get their fair share of these kind of deals. So, yeah, I suspect that the board of Hypnosis Songs Fund have just got an extra dimension to consider. Indeed. Well, that'll be interesting again to see how that one plays out. We do seem to mention them rather a lot, but that's partly because it's uh, always entertaining to go back through your music catalogue, Simon. <laughs> and mine, if you go back far enough. Anyway, in the Moneymaker Circle this week, we have a, a profile of uh, Bluefield Solar Income Fund, which is one I know which has been going for a number of years and which is uh, one of the interesting trusts in the renewables sector. And we'll be back next week to talk about what happens next week. And as always, thank you for your time and insights, Sam. My pleasure. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.